1: you have an airbnb your home might be worth more than you think find out how much at airbnb.com slash host
2: hello and welcome to the new statesman podcast i'm deputy editor helen lewis And this week, Caroline Crampton will be discussing The Week in Westminster with John Elledge and Lucy Fisher. I'll be talking to Ajit Nerenjan and Ian Steadman about how to wear Google Glass without becoming a glasshole. And Philip Maugham will be talking about World War I from the side of the Germans.
3: and i'm here with lucy fisher and john Ellis to talk about the week's politics and this week we're going to focus on the conservative party and lucy it's not been a particularly good week for david cameron has it you were in the house for his big apology at pmqs over his employment of andy coulson now convicted of phone hacking how did that go down
4: it was interesting caroline in one sense of course we knew about the the you know the hiring of andy and um, we've already had the fallout there so It wasn't so much a surprise for David Cameron, but interestingly, he looked as rattled in the chamber as I've ever seen him. He was shaking as he held um, a piece of paper reading out the Leveson statement. Um, He relied quite heavily on the judgments from the official inquiry. But I think, interestingly, the most important thing to come out of this is the questions about the vetting procedure and whether Cameron bent the rules to allow Andy Coulson to come into Number 10 without being properly vetted. And if that is the case, I think that is going to cause him problems because it only adds to the idea that, you know, it's the old boy's network, he's one of us, the rules don't apply to us, we're special, um, that won't go down well with the electorate.
3: It's this issue of developed vetting, isn't it?
4: It's this idea of this kind of
3: uh over and above the usual process that sometimes this kind of thing is carried out uh when people go to work in number 10 and other sensitive departments that looks into their love lives all aspects of their
4: finances even more than just normal civil service vetting yes exactly and one of the key points about developed vetting is to look into um criminal activity and whether anyone has done something that leaves them liable to blackmail and obviously now we've seen that with Andy Coulson he was um guilty of criminal activity so it's um it's a big problem.
3: And the way Cameron has tried to play this is very much as that, you know, I was given assurances, I was giving him a second chance, I said I'd apologise if I turned out to wrong, and now I have. So in a sense, any kind of damage to him or his party
4: has surely kind of been priced in. Exactly. I think um, you're right entirely. And we, we've we known about this, it, you know, this trial's been going on for months. Um, so most of the damage has already been done. Um, Cameron apologised um, at the time. He's apologised now, maybe in a slightly perfunctory way, but I don't think this is going to cause long-term damage apart from the vetting issue. John, what did you make of it?
1: I was slightly stunned by the weakness of the Conservative Party's response. To be honest, I mean they've been—they must have known that this was a very real possibility, but their line of defence seemed to be to to, to point to Damien McBride, the former Labour press officer. Uh, and say, well, well, he was just as bad. Damien McBride is not a convicted criminal. He was a slightly shouty man, um, and trying to, to draw that comparison just kind of suggests to me that they didn't have anything stronger to come back with. Having said all that, I do agree with Lucy that I, I can't see them suffering any further damage from this. I think all the damage that was going to be done to their political prospects has happened. Everyone kind of knew that something of this sort was going to happen. I think the expectation was that it would be far more likely that, that somebody in this trial was convicted and it was most likely to be Coulson. Um, so I can't really see it working in Labour's favour by by hitting the Conservative vote share at all.
3: No, and I suppose it's all bound up with what happened over the Leveson inquiry as well, how um, you know Labour got involved with hacked off and the sort of settlement that's been reached hasn't really pleased anybody or been shown to have any particular effect on the way the press operates and so as he did at pmq's cameron can just keep saying well the leveson inquiries already looked at this the leveson inquiry has already found i didn't do anything wrong and there's not much more we can say
1: the, that's true i think there is also a, a broader problem here which is the the general public's attitude towards politicians at the moment is very much one of a pox on both your houses mm. so even if uh the labor party can point to genuine wrongdoing somewhere within the conservative hierarchy I don't think Labour currently has that credibility needed to really uh, make political capital out of that.
4: Yes, Lucy. Yeah, I think a, a really good point, um, John. And also, you know, look, I think David Cameron's um, riposte to Ed Miliband yesterday that, well, look, you know, you posed with the Sun, you attacked Murdoch, then you sucked up to him, and you apologise for posing with his paper, upsetting your own voters, upsetting Liverpudlians because of the Sun's coverage of the Hillsborough disaster, um, I think shows that he brings out the public's ire um, and frustration with this idea that all politicians are in bed with the media. there's this complicity and slightly shady dealings. Um, so i think I think it is just adding into the general sort of frustration among voters and it's also not clear I mean we're interested in this,
3: we work in the media. Uh, a lot of people are interested in the angle insofar as it's affected the victims of phone hacking, but whether it's actually resonated beyond that
4: in such a way that will change people's votes. I'm not sure about that yet. I agree, I think it's really low salience. It's not a doorstep issue. People are worried about jobs, youth issues, the economy. They're not so concerned about, you know, personnel in number 10, that's uh, inside the beltway.
3: And another another issue that is, I think perhaps like that is also this issue of Europe and who should be president mm. of Europe. Um, David Cameron has chosen to stick his neck out on this one and resist the appointment of Jean-Claude Juncker. Uh, John, what do you make of this move by Cameron?
1: I, I think as a the European strategy has comprehensively failed. I mean, I think the, the Conservative strategy has been one of almost trying to blackmail our, our European allies into kind of getting in line behind the kind of reforms that, that Britain wants. Um, and those are not going to be forthcoming under a, a Juncker presidency. I mean, he's very, he's very much a federalist. He's from Luxembourg, which is a, a country that, you know, because it's a small country, I imagine, is generally much more in favor of European integration than, than, uh, than many of the other countries in, in the EU. Um, and he is almost certainly going to be European Commission president, despite the fact that Cameron has basically bet everything on, on preventing that. I, I think the, the reason that this strategy has failed is because Cameron's entire strategy is based on appeasing his own uh, grumpy, eurosceptic backbenchers. And he's kind of lost track of the fact that other European leaders also have domestic electorates to consider. They also have people behind them pushing them in a certain direction. And you can't just run a union of 28 countries for the benefit of, of the noisiest, grumpiest member. It, it's got to be based on compromise.
3: And ultimately, the comprom- it's going to be a compromise that has Juncker in charge.
1: I think that seems incredibly likely at this stage. Um, I mean, and if that does happen, it's, it's kind of a sort of double failure for David Cameron. It's a failure both because he has stuck his neck out on this issue um, and because we're now going to have the kind of European Commission president who wants a whole raft of policies that, that not just conservatives, but Britain as a whole is generally not very interested in.
3: And that has a grudge against David Cameron.
1: That's not going to help either. That's not going (laughs) to help, (laughs) is it?
3: Right. Um, So, you mentioned there that um, this is to do with David Cameron's relationship with his backbenchers. Uh, Lucy, do you think that they are going to look
4: approvingly on Cameron for trying? I think that's a really interesting question. Of course, the Tory ultras, as I like to call them, the really far right wing of the Conservative Party, is actually quite a small minority. Um, It's a very vocal minority. Um, but we're going to see in the next months, uh, up in the lead up to the election and possibly after that, if, if the Conservatives are in charge again, whether this idea of giving crumbs from the table to that side of the party has been a wise choice to sort of allay their fears um, and sort of get the electorate on board with renegotiation and staying in Europe, or whether it's the path to the Brexit, the British exit. Um, so I think that remains to be seen. As to whether they will actually reward Cameron for the, with their with their attention. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think you know it's interesting that he has the support of the party behind him on this one, and in fact the electorate um, is happy to see him fighting, standing up for what he believes in, even though he's going to fail. A very interesting poll in the FT yesterday showed that um, around seventy percent of the electorate thought yes, good on you, even though you're going to lose this argument about Jean. Um, Jean Claude Juncker, um, you know, we're glad to have a strong leader who's willing to say what he believes in, and I think the party, um, his backbench MPs, probably agree with that. Well, thank you very
3: much, John and Lucy.
4: Thank you. Thank you.
2: Joined by Ajit Niranjan and Ian Stebbin to talk about wearable tech, which, as you know, is a subject that we keep returning to um, because we're dreadful hipsters. Um, Google Glass has launched this week. Uh, its big launch event was on Monday, which Ajit, you went to. Mm-hmm. So first of all, ta- bring it to life for me. <laughs>
0: um, yes, yeah, so it was a surprisingly nice, really fancy place. Well, I guess you could just bet that outside Central Saint Martins, um, and it was just a big launch event. Um, there were hundreds of little Google Glasses on display, which you're free to pick up, play around with um and yeah it's just really cool i don't (laughs) really know how to say
1: much more than
2: that (laughs) so you're completely won over today so we should say that um... that they've just they've been on sale through the explorer program for Mm -hmm. some time in the u.s they're a thousand dollars in the u.s that translates to a thousand pounds in the uk because (laughs) google apparently don't understand exchange rates um Ian, uh, will you be rushing out to spend a £1,000 in your, no. your gotten progressive loot?
5: <laughs> they make. I've said this before, um, they make you look like a dweeb. Um, they, they, I mean, they, they, Google Glass is the idea. is the Real-time translation, for instance, you can wear this thing and it's got a camera in it and you can say, okay, Glass, translate this menu in front of me and it will translate an Italian menu into English. That's quite cool. But you are walking around with a big computer and camera thing on your glasses, um, which kind of puts people off if you imagine me kind of walking
0: around holding up a camera recording everyone i spoke to
2: that is a bit weird um yeah Ajit, do you use siri
0: no no i don't i've uh i'm a bit of a technological dinosaur really
2: I've Right. Been, is this got... why you were won over by yeah. google glass you were like <laughs> i, I just like the shiny <laughs> <laughs>
5: that's kind of the thing with google glass well um <clears throat> excuse me the the whole point of it is that um well with wearable tech in general and this is you know smart watches and all this kind of stuff is the gradual um like the way that the line between that where the tech ends and us begins kind of ends so at the moment you've got your smartphone a lot of people i don't use siri because i never am in a situation where i feel like i want to get my phone out my pocket and press a button and ask it a question and that just feels really unintuitive and really weird but with google glass you're walking around and this thing's listening to you all the time and you can say okay glass um Look up stage times at Glastonbury this weekend or something, you know, and it will tell you. Um, but
2: you know that 90% of people would just be going, why open the pod blade doors, Hal? Or like, <laughs> how many, would you rather fight 100 horse-sized ducks or 10 duck-sized horses? Or... Yes.
5: Um, and also there's the whole creepy, um, you wink to take a photo. Yeah, that thing was a bit um, weird. Yeah. That was definitely a bit weird. And was, didn't you say that someone, while you were wearing glass, someone else was talking about it and it was listening yeah. to them?
1: Yeah, and no, thought so. that they
5: were giving it commands and mm. th- thought it was you giving it commands. So someone else was taking control
0: of your glass. Yeah, unintentionally.
1: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass?" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
6: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: As the uh, demonstrator told me what to say to glass. mm he ended up doing all the same things that I should be doing to it himself. Yeah. Which is some so. of the
2: problems that they've had on um, the Xbox Connect as well by people saying things that they didn't quite realise in the middle of watching something Oh yeah, it. The, yeah, they're yeah. I mean, the
0: saying Xbox, Xbox One, was it?
2: Yeah, a, yeah, exactly. There's a
0: whole gag on,
5: in 30 Rock about that with um, the TV, when character like, uh, when uh, they launch a cable box that is uh, voice activated, but every time a character in the show says off, it turns off. <laughs> so it keeps turning itself off.
2: But this is the thing, I feel exactly the same. I mean, like, I think this is a technology with amazing potential, mm. but the problem with it in the moment is that it's like the Xbox Connect or the PlayStation Move. I've tried playing games using those things, and actually, fundamentally, my thumbs are just better. Oh, yeah. And also, the reason that I play computer games is that I like to sit, <laughs> yeah, down, sit right. down. That was always
5: why I never really got into the Wii. Um, and I. I yeah, I, I, I've always, I always, um, Nintendo did announce like you can use old GameCube-style controllers recently for the new Wii U, and that weirdly um, is more likely to make me buy a Wii U than all the fancy motion control stuff.
2: But what do you think about Google's strategy with this? I mean, is it just the stage, as I imagine, they're sitting in their volcano lair and they've got so, mon- so much money <laughs> that they just don't know what to do with it, and so it doesn't really, does it matter to them reputationally whether or not this succeeds or fails?
0: Yeah, maybe. I think they've actually got a good idea with this one in that they did say that they sort of want to take people out of staring down at smartphones all day and actually get them interacting with the real world. make them wink at strangers. strangers. Um, So even if it doesn't pull off quite as everyone's hoping, it'll still be an interesting move for them to make. Do
2: you know Mm -hmm. what the sales figures have been like in the US?
5: Well, it's only recently gone on sale to the public. The Explorer program, which is what it's gone on sale in the UK, as, is kind of like a beta testing period where you pay a lot of money for what is essentially... Well, it's it's going to be close to the real version. It's not really a prototype. Um, But their sales have been amazing. And a large part of that is because people... It has this terrible branding issue. It's not like iPhones when they first came out. And that was a revolutionary idea, um, the smartphone. But they also looked really cool. Whereas Google Glass is possibly the most revolutionary of the wearable text that we've seen, but it also just looks really sad when you wear it.
2: (laughs) This is is my point about buying a a fitness band, is that I wanted the one that looked least like a fitness band as possible, which I guess is what happens to people. But I think there's also an interesting question here about Google's strategy. So one of the things I've really noticed with search is that they've started supplying a lot more search information natively in the page. So the World Cup's been a really interesting example of this. If you type Germany into Google now, it will tell you when Germany's next matches or give you the current scoreline of what that game is i don't know what happens if you type england in now i mean it makes a sort of sad trombone (laughs) noise or something like that but this is i think setting up a really interesting conflict um which you can see google want to push on and they you know they can't just rest Mm. on their laurels but will eventually i'm sure bring them into conflict with newspapers and and news providers because google is such a huge traffic source and people have there's been such a cottage industry about writing stuff you know, the, the kind of classic example being what time is the Super Bowl? You write an article that says that and people write incredibly large amounts of guff about the Google Doodles because when you click the Google Doodle, you get the research result for Google Doodles. Mm. So to the extent that actually they have people in Australia where it goes up first who then yeah, who then are there to watch for it. So there's a kind of, yeah, like I say, a cottage industry of anticipating what Google want and mm. what Google will push to you. But at some point I wonder, isn't that Google's problem? It will just come on a collision course with with yeah, other people who feel that their business is... That, that already
5: happens. Um, in Germany and in France, there have been court cases about whether Google should pay large publishers fees for what they see as essentially... Um, you know, Google's Google's stances, you know, it's just linking to stuff that's on the Internet. It's just out there. But large French newspapers, for instance, think that what Google is doing is making money off ads off the back of the content that they're producing. So Google should pay a fee, essentially kind of a republishing fee. Um, and that's a very different and, and the courts of there are kind of sympathetic to that, whereas mm-hmm. in. I don't know the Anglo-Saxon system or something in America and the UK um, yeah, that doesn't US really happen. Yeah, the US courts would court. never do that, but in the EU, there's a lot more sympathy to that argument.
2: It's, uh, it's. I think it's a, it's a really fascinating company to look at. It's kind of it's unique in, in lots of different ways and. I think, I confidently predict that someone in this office probably will buy a Google Glass <laughs> and we will mock them but secretly oh, yeah. we'll be slightly we'll be super jealous, jealous. <laughs>
5: but we, and even if we don't buy Glass, we'll buy the thing after Glass that's a lot more um, subtle and uh, kind of hidden, you know, uh, the ones that you can't tell that the glasses have a camera in them.
2: We'll buy a version of Glass that just allows you to yo people <laughs> yes. maybe, a really budget <laughs> knockoff. version
5: or <laughs> <What> a pager <laughs> Yeah, that's how it's called technology Oh, yeah. well,
2: thank you very much to Ian Agit
7: This week's New Statesman is dedicated to the First World War and a number of new ways at looking at the Great War. We have Owen Clayton discussing poets from outside of Britain and Simon Winder profiling the Archduke who was assassinated in Sarajevo, starting off the conflict. We also have a lovely piece from journalist and writer Robin Lustig, whose grandfather fought on the German side during the war. So, Robin, what, what
6: was your grandfather's involvement? What was his story? His story was that he already was 40 by the time the First World War started. He was ever a bit old to be called up, and he wasn't called up immediately. He ran a small textiles business at the time and thought that he might escape the war, but it was not to be, and in 1916 he was indeed called up. Quite happy to do his duty, I have the impression. He was a proud German. He was a non-practicing Jew, but at that time that really wasn't as relevant as it was to become much later. So he joined the army and from his memoirs, which I have read, it appears that he didn't have too bad a time of it. Most of his accounts about how he managed to get a bit of extra leave and go home to see his wife and family. And uh, as I say, it wasn't too bad all in all. Was that because he was in his 40s, do you think? Yeah, he was already 41. He, the, the German army had a special category called old gentleman. Oh, nice. And he was <laughs> an old gentleman. So I think they looked after him. He also developed a rather unpleasant skin condition on one of his legs, which meant that he had to receive medical attention and smear his leg with ointment all the time. So he wasn't in great physical shape. So I don't think they thought he was great cannon fodder. They weren't going to send him to the trenches. But uh, he did his duty. He was in a a sort of back room capacity and uh, did what he was told to do. And how did you piece this story
7: together? Because I understand you didn't
6: actually meet your grandfather. I never met my grandfather. He died before I was born. But he did write his memoirs during the Second World War, when he'd already had to leave Germany. Because although. He'd never practiced Judaism. Hitler regarded him as a Jew, and life became very uncomfortable. And here and my grandmother actually managed to escape from Germany after the beginning of the Second World War, in fact, in 1940. And they spent the years of the Second World War in Portugal, where one of their daughters was living. He whiled away his time by writing his memoirs, and they are a wonderful resource. And part of his life story, of course, was his experience in the First World War. I don't read German, but with great foresight, my father and his elder brother, my uncle, decided about 30 years or so ago that they would translate their father's memoirs into English, because none of their children, none of my generation, spoke German, and they thought these memoirs were worth reading for successive generations. Very fortunately, from my point of view, a few months ago, my dad and I were talking about all of the comment that was coming about the 100th anniversary of the outbreak of the First World War. And my dad said, do you think anybody would be interested in what your grandfather wrote about it? So I said, well, I'll have another read and I'll see. And I read it and I thought it was absolutely fascinating.
7: It is. You have quite a few quotations in in your piece from these memoirs. And I think what's most staggering is that he's writing this sort of in exile, and yet he still manages to write about Germany in this incredibly sort of perceptive and even-handed way.
6: He does, and he writes as a man who, although he had, as you say, been exiled from his homeland, who had been told by the Nazi regime that he was not to be regarded as a German, he was still a proud German nationalist in his own eyes. He thought of himself as a German, and when he looked back at the events leading up to the First World War, he saw them through very German eyes. He did not believe that the First World War was Germany's fault. On the contrary, he says in terms, it was England's fault. England was jealous of Germany's commercial rise. It was providing more and more competition for the English, as he called them, the British, as we would call them, and that the war, therefore, owed its, its uh, origins to commercial interests.
7: And it's astonishing um, you contrast this with the way that um, our education minister Michael Gove compares, uh, uh, thinks about the German attitude in the First World War. I mean, your grandfather did not see the Kaiser as being in any way a kind of uh, a sort of imperial uh, leader. He was, he was defending sort of German interests.
6: He was defending German interests and he's got this rather sweet line, my grandfather, where he says that Kaiser Wilhelm was a romantic His enthusiasm for the sea and the navy were more more romantic than political in nature. I admit he would have liked to have more colonies, but he wouldn't have gone to war to obtain them, even less did he have territorial ambitions on the continent of Europe. He sounds terribly sympathetic towards the Kaiser. Mm. And you wonder if maybe sort of
7: more memoirs, more kind of reading on, on the German side of things might actually enrich the discourse in Britain, because, I mean, do you feel that discussion of the First World War is often
6: terribly Anglo-centric. I suppose inevitably it is. I mean, it, it is inevitable that on this 100th anniversary, people will be most interested in what was being said, what was being done here in this country. But it is valuable, I think, I certainly found it fascinating to have this little insight into what one very ordinary German felt about the First World War and even many years later after circumstances had changed hugely, still felt that Germany had been the injured party. Did his war record sort
7: of proffer on him any kind of, um, any advantages when 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 Hitler came to power? Was was there any, you know, did he have any medals he could sort of... Well, I,
6: I'm not sure if he had any medals, but there, there is a very nice line in his memoirs where he refers to the fact that anybody who had fought on the front line in the German army during the First World War was called a Frontkämpfer, a, a fighter on the front. Mm. And for German Jews who were entitled to call themselves this, for a brief period in the early days of the Nazi regime, it did confer on them some privileges. They were actually exempt from some of the first anti-Jewish laws. And my grandfather thought this was really rather odd. He said, uh, let me quote, I'm pleased that the Führer has expressly acknowledged the fact that I fought at the front by awarding me a special medal and that he has thereby compromised himself. In other words, the whole Nazi philosophy based on the idea that Jews weren't real Germans. On the other hand, here were German Jews who'd fought in the German army and for a time at least were being recognized as German heroes.
7: I think a compromised Hitler would be a beautiful place to uh, to round off. Thank you very much, Robin Lustig.
2: You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast. You can find us every week at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast or on iTunes. Our theme music is taken from Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons.